Good evening, everybody. Good to see everybody tonight. Glad you made it around the traffic, made it here. Uh, we certainly need to be praying for those who were involved in the accident just down the road. But just kind of a, a funny story before we begin. At 5 o'clock, just a couple hours ago, Marty knows what I'm about to say. Um, just a couple of hours ago, the church building didn't have any power whatsoever. And so I called Marty and said, Marty, what do you think we need to do about this? As soon as he started to speak, lights popped on. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I, mean, I tell you, if, if that doesn't tell you how great our elders are, uh, what will? I don't know. It's good to be back together tonight. Appreciate Kim filling in for me last week. I miss being here, but I know that you were blessed to study Jesus and Nicodemus from the Gospel of John. Tonight we're returning back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, if you want to Turn in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 5, and as our practice has been the last few weeks, we're going to be working our way throughout that entire chapter tonight, Daniel chapter 5. So since it's been a couple weeks, I don't know if this is already etched into your brain or not, but just to review kind of the three main parts, three main aspects of our study as we walk through the book of Daniel together, I think it's a good way to study the Bible. That first, we start by introducing the text. I want, as we begin, I want to take just a few minutes, not a long time, but just a few minutes to bridge the gap between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Between Daniel chapter 4 and verse 37 and Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1, there's about a 25 to 30 year gap. Uh, so just reading through the text, you might not acknowledge that. So I want us to take some time to bridge that gap. Then, of course, we're going to study, walk through the text together, and seek out some applications. So let's go ahead and, and bridge that gap between what we talked about two weeks ago in Daniel chapter 4 and what we're talking about tonight in Daniel chapter 5. Who's the king who has showed up in almost every story so far? Remember his name? Nice long name. Probably hard for him to learn it whenever he was a little kid. Ne yeah, Nebuchadnezzar. Heard it from a couple different places. He was the king of Babylon. Yeah, so we've been talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. He enjoyed a nice long reign of about 43 years from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. Whenever we saw him at the end of Daniel chapter 4, he was living during a very peaceful time, and that time continued all the way to his death. He died a very peaceful death at a very peaceful time for the Babylonians where really no fighting was going on, nothing difficult was going on. He died of natural causes in 562 B.C. Whenever he died, his son, Amel Marduk, which Marduk is one of the Babylonian gods among Baal is another one that we've talked about so far. But Amel Marduk reigned only for two years, 562 to 560 B.C. The reason his reign was so short is because he was assassinated by this joker, Nereglissar. Uh, Nereglissar killed Nebuchadnezzar's son, the throne was taken away from Nebuchadnezzar's family. Nereglissar reigned for about four years until he died, and then his son took over. Notice how you can see Babylon kind of crumbling. You can see things starting to go south. King Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, but after his death, what we're going to see is that Babylon barely survived for another 25 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. And you can see it just reflected in the kings and what happened to them. When Nereglissar died after reigning for four years, Labashi Marduk reigned for a whopping nine months 
in 556 BC. The reason his reign was so short was just like Amel Marduk. They had the same last part there of their name. He was assassinated. And whenever he was assassinated, a man named Nabonidus, King Nabonidus, took over in 556 BC. Notice that you had three kings there reigning in one year. Nerglasar, Labashi Marduk, and then Nabonidus reigned from 556 to October 12th of 539 B.C. And that's the date of what we're going to be studying in Daniel chapter 5. We didn't even know it yesterday, but we're celebrating the anniversary of, uh, today's the 13th, right? Yeah, we celebrated the anniversary yesterday of what we're going to be studying tonight. Didn't even know it. Uh, So Nabonidus reigned until that date, until what we find here. His son is really going to be the center of this story in Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar. It means Bel protect his life. You can, or Bel protect the king is what that means. You can see why a king would name his son that, right? Bel, Babylonian God, protect the king, my dad. If, if, If I was a king, I'd probably name my son that too, except for the whole you know, false god part there. Uh, but three years into Nabonidus' reign, he made Belshazzar the second in command in Babylon. So he reigned as second in command from 553 again until what we find here, Daniel chapter 5, October 12th of 539 B.C. Okay, so that kind of bridges the gap between what we talked about last time with King Nebuchadnezzar and what we're talking about tonight with Belshazzar and Daniel chapter 5. Is there anything else we want to mention there? Okay, well, let's keep going. Let's go ahead and dive into Daniel chapter 5. Let's look at the first four verses just to kind of set the stage before we begin. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here we see what Belshazzar is doing on October 12th of 539 BC. He's having this great banquet, this great party, this great celebration. Before we look at what they're doing at this banquet, let's talk about why they're doing it. Why they're having this great celebration on October 12th. If you back up two days to October 10th, the Medo-Persians stepped into Babylon's territory, the army of the Medo-Persians, overwhelmed the Babylonian army and conquered two very important Babylonian cities just two days before this. And so when you look at the capital city of Babylon, which is where Belshazzar is, his dad, as soon as he heard about the Medo-Persians stepping in, Nabonidus, he fled. He's nowhere to be found in Daniel chapter 5 on this day. He's scared. They know that the capital city of Babylon is going to be attacked. They know that the Medo-Persians' next stop is the capital city, the great city. Of course, if they overthrow the capital city, then it's going to be a win for the Medo-Persians, isn't it? So what did Belshazzar do? His dad's gone. He's second in command, so he's the highest ranking authority here. He knows that Medo-Persia is about to step into the capital city, try to overcome the capital city, so he prepares the army. Make sure his defenses are nice and strong. Make sure they're ready to fight back. No, it throws a party. 
He has a banquet. It's kind of like you know that a tornado's coming towards your house. You've been watching the news. This tornado has destroyed every single house, every single structure in its way to that point. The tornado's about to hit your house. What are you going to do? Oh, well, that's just the perfect time for me to invite over all my friends, and we're going to have a really good time watching this tornado make its way toward my house, right? That's not what I would do. And if that's what you would do, don't invite me because I'm not going to come. But that's what, basically, what Belshazzar did. That the Medo-Persians, this great, powerful army, had overwhelmed Babylon just two days prior, already overtaken two of their powerful cities. They're about to enter into the capital city of Babylon, where Belshazzar is, and he's throwing a feast. He's throwing a celebration. Why in the world is he doing that? There's a couple different options. The text doesn't tell us exactly why he's doing it, but I think the text hints at it. Maybe it's his pride. We're going to see in this text, God addresses the pride of Belshazzar. Maybe he's so prideful and arrogant. Oh, the, the city of Babylon could never be destroyed. Maybe every other city could be conquered. Every other city could be destroyed. But it's never going to happen to Babylon because this city is so strong and it's been here for so long and, and they'll, they'll never be able to enter through the city walls. So maybe it's his pride. And we find in verse 4 that they're praising their false gods, their pantheon of Babylonian gods, perhaps they're already praising these gods for the victory that they expect. And it's because of their pride or their arrogance. Or maybe it's that they're seeking help from their gods. It's not so much that they're prideful or arrogant, but they're coming together. They know the Medo-Persians are coming. They're going to have a good time, but they're seeking help from their pantheon of gods to help them fight against the Medo-Persians. We can throw a party, we can have fun, but then we'll get really serious when the army gets here. We don't know exactly why he's doing this, but I think maybe those are, are the two best options. Um, anybody have any thoughts about that? About this celebration or why they might be having it? Well, all we know is that they're having it, for sure. They're having this great celebration on the night that Medo-Persia is going to come into the capital city. We see what they're doing. It's basically a party for them to get drunk and to praise all of their idols. Belshazzar does something that I think Nebuchadnezzar, who we've been studying, would have never done. What did he do? What does the text really center on in the first four verses of Daniel chapter 5 that Belshazzar did? Well, if you go back to Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, whenever Nebuchadnezzar stepped into Judah, whenever he overtook the city of Jerusalem, notice he took some of the vessels of the house of God. So he took some of the gold and silver vessels that were designed to be used in worship to God and were used in the temple. Usually, whenever a nation would conquer another nation, they would take those treasures and treat them with great respect. And I think Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was doing that. We take the treasures from the temple in Jerusalem. We've taken these gold and silver vessels out of the temple of their God. And we're going to put them directly into the temple of our God. But Belshazzar doesn't. It seems that that's where they've remained up to this point. But what does Belshazzar do with them? Oh yeah, hey, bring out those vessels that we got from Judah way back when under Nebuchadnezzar. And they're going to be our cups for our drinks. We're going to get drunk off of wine that we're going to pour in vessels that were made to worship God. And we're going to praise our false gods. 
perhaps what they were thinking here, perhaps this was a reminder to them of the victories they've had, of, hey, we defeated Judah, and their God wasn't able to stop us, and we took all of their vessels, and now we're going to bring that out as a reminder as the Medo-Persians step in. And as the Medo-Persians attempt to overthrow us, this, us drinking out of these vessels perhaps was symbolic to the Babylonians that they're going to be victorious over the Medo-Persians just like they were victorious over Judah. That God that we conquered in Jerusalem, He's impotent. He's weak. Well, as we continue reading, we're going to find that that's not the case. We're going to find that actually the opposite of that is true. They thought that they were commemorating some of their victorious battles in the past, but what they were actually doing is spitting in the face of the one who's in control. Spitting in the face of the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom in the first place. So that's what they're doing, and I think that's why they're doing it. One more question before we move on. Why is Nebuchadnezzar addressed as Belshazzar's father? In the way that we use the word father, I'm talking about my dad. We know that Nebuchadnezzar was not Belshazzar's dad. We talked about that in our introduction as we bridge that gap. So why is he, and we'll find this throughout the text, Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father. Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son. Well, the word father in both Aramaic and Hebrew, which Daniel consists of, is very flexible. So it can be used to refer to an ancestor, and there are a lot of people think that, ne- that think Nebuchadnezzar might have been Belshazzar's grandfather. And so, I, and they think about that in a couple of different ways. Maybe Belshazzar was actually his physical grandson, and Nabonidus adopted him into his family in order to provide some legitimacy to his reign. Or maybe Nabonidus married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters to provide legitimacy to his reign. And they had Belshazzar. We just don't know. History doesn't tell us. So it could refer to Nebuchadnezzar as his ancestor, his grandfather, or this word could refer to Nebuchadnezzar as his predecessor in the same office. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. You look in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is serving in the function as king. Even though he was technically second in command, he functioned as king, and especially in the story that we find here in Daniel chapter 5. So perhaps that's, if you see that designation and think it's a little bit odd, maybe that's the reason. Okay, anything else we want to mention about that? Let's keep going, verse number 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or make known the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed as color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen who is possibly the widow of Nebuchadnezzar or maybe the wife of Nabonidus, it seems that it's not the wife of Belshazzar because his wives and concubines are already at the party. 
Here's some, one from the outside entering in. So, um, could be a couple of those options. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Well, we've heard that before, haven't we? We know who we're talking about. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this, here's his name, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. I think it's interesting how similar the two names are. Belshazzar, Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Can you imagine how quickly the tone of this party changed? One minute, it's a drunken celebration, praising the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. But then everybody, I think, sobered up a little bit. I think this brought everybody back. Maybe some people were so drunk, they thought they were delusional. They thought this was a delusion they were seeing, but according to the text, it happened. Out of nowhere, a hand appeared. Just a hand. And it wrote a message on the wall where everybody could see it. Back in the ancient world, a detached hand was a symbol for death. Do you know why? Because when two kingdoms would fight against each other, the one who won would cut off all the hands of the soldiers on the other side that were slain. And that's how they knew how many people were killed. And do you ever wonder when the Bible says this many people were killed, do you ever wonder how they knew that? Cut off the hands, count the hands. So a detached hand was a symbol of death. So here's a detached hand, but it's alive. It's animated. It's moving. It's writing a message on top of the, on, on the wall where everybody can see it. Perhaps the meaning behind that? See, the Babylonians are mocking God. Oh yeah, we, we defeated him years ago. He's weak. He's impotent. He's dead. Well, no, here's his hand. And King Belshazzar, he has something he wants to say to you. He has a message that he wants you to hear. So, of course, when Belshazzar sees this, he's, I mean, scared to death. The text talks about, the text describes it in a number of different ways. He calls together, like Nebuchadnezzar did several times, the wise men of Babylon and asks them, read this and then tell me what it means. But none of them could do it. He even dangled a pretty hefty price in front of him. If you can read and interpret this for me, I'll make you third in command. His dad was first, he's second, I'll make you third. And they still couldn't do it. Maybe you're thinking, why couldn't they at least read it? Right? I mean, this is the language they spoke. Well, imagine this would have been written in Aramaic. It would have had no spaces, no vowels, and you read it from right to left. We read from left to right. At least I think we do. That's the way I learned it. They read from right to left. Imagine taking a sentence in English, taking out all the vowels, smushing it together, removing all the spaces. Would you have a hard time reading it? I think it's the same problem here. That there's, maybe they could have read it, but there's a little bit of uncertainty. There's a little bit of, well, it could say this or it could say this. And so he wants to know for sure. Read it and interpret it. They can't. And so the queen steps in. She reminds him about, Hey, this guy, 
This Hebrew, this person that was taken from Judah years ago, he served Nebuchadnezzar. He, did the, he interpreted these kind of things for Nebuchadnezzar. And so I think he can do it for you. If, if you allow him to see this, he can read it for you and he'll tell you the interpretation. His name is Daniel. The king called him Belteshazzar. And so now he has some knowledge about it. seems he hadn't heard about Daniel before, hadn't heard of Daniel's reputation, but it seems that now he does. The queen tells him about him, and let's, let's see what he does. Verse number 13. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter, by the way. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give the interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So basically, he brings Daniel in and says, I know who you are. And he tells him, here's what I've heard about you. I know what you did for Nebuchadnezzar. And now I'm asking you to do it for me. None of the wise men could do it. And I'm asking you, could you read the words on this wall, I imagine they're standing there looking at it. Could you read what's on the wall and then tell me what it means? Because this must be some kind of important message. With what's about to happen with the Medo-Persians stepping in and this miracle, a detached hand writing a message on the wall, this has to mean something. It's not just gibberish. He dangles the little reward in front of him. Hey, if you can do this, by the way, I'll make you third. Third in line in the kingdom. Third in control. Third, third man to call the shots. So let's see what Daniel does. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his, man was made like that of, his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom He will. And you, His son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of His house have been brought in before you, and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. <coughs> Excuse me. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, whom... Do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and the, this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsim. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. 
Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Daniel responds, tell me the dream, not the dream, we're not on dreams anymore. Read the handwriting on the wall and tell me what it means. Before Daniel does that, he, he agrees to do it. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll tell it to you. But before the first thing he mentions, <coughs> sorry, I've been dealing with a cough here for a few days. I'm sure that sounds good coming through the microphone, doesn't it? Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, but before he moves on to read the words or give the interpretation, he says, I don't want your gifts. Give that to somebody else. I think Daniel did that for two reasons. Number one, he recognized that there's value in doing some things without reward. That sometimes the right thing is just the right thing to do, and he doesn't want the king to think he's doing this just so he'll be rewarded for it. But I think also maybe the second more practical reason If he's made third in command in Babylon, it's not going to last very long, is it? According to the end of the chapter, what happens that night, we'll get there in just a minute. But So Daniel says, yeah, verse number 17, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. But before he does that, he talks about why the writing is there. He says, before I tell you what it means, let me tell you why that writing is on top of the wall. And he gives Belshazzar a little history lesson. This wasn't a history lesson that Belshazzar was unfamiliar with. This was something that he actually witnessed. This is something that he lived through. He talks about King Nebuchadnezzar and how God, notice Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this on his own. That's the lesson he learned in Daniel 4, right? That God gave Nebuchadnezzar kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness, people bowed down and trembled before him and he did what he wanted to. But, go back to chapter 4. Oh, look at this kingdom. I did it all. It's all for my glory. Remember that? What was the consequence? Nebuchadnezzar, you're not going to live like a man anymore, let alone live like a king. Now you're going to live like an animal. And you're going to live like a beast of the field. You're going to crawl around and you're going to eat grass. Lose your mind. Go crazy. For seven periods of time, the text says in Daniel chapter 4. And so he's he's telling Belshazzar about what happened and about hey, here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and he didn't humble himself before God, but he was very proud, and so God brought this consequence upon him. You know, there's an old adage that says, learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. Did Belshazzar live or learn from Nebuchadnezzar's mistake? He didn't, did he? He says, you knew all this. You knew that this is what happened to him, and you knew that this is why it happened to him. He said, Belshazzar would have been there. Nabonidus was a part of King Nebuchadnezzar's court when Nebuchadnezzar was towards the latter part of his reign. Belshazzar would have saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and knew why it happened as a child, that he was gone for seven years and lived like an animal. He says, you knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and you knew why it happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but you didn't learn from his mistake. You didn't learn from the lesson that he learned. Daniel tells him that you, his son, have not humbled your heart 
Verse 23, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Well, how do we know Belshazzar was that kind of person? Look at what he just did. That's what Daniel talks about. He took vessels that were designed to be used in worship to God and used them for his drunken party. Instead of praising and honoring God who's in control, he was praising and honoring false idols. I think it's really powerful at the end of verse uh, verse number 23. He talks about you're praising these gods of silver and gold that can't do anything. It's kind of like what we mentioned on Sunday morning. They can't talk, they can't move, they can't listen, they can't see. And you were falling down and praising them. You were falling down and worshiping them. But look at who you did not honor. He says, you didn't honor the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways. You're honoring these idols that can't do anything, but here's the God who gives you every single breath and gives you the ability to make every single decision in your life and you refuse to bow the knee before Him. He fell into the same trap as Nebuchadnezzar. Pride. Arrogance. He refused to bow in humility before God. And Daniel says that's why that's written on that wall. He says, that is why you see this handwriting on the wall. Well, what did the handwriting on the wall mean? These are, he uses three Aramaic terms. Mene, verse 25, Tekel. Well, Mene is repeated. Notice you have it there twice. Then you have Tekel and Parsin. If you notice, Parsin in verse 25 is plural. Verse 28, Perez is singular. Well, what does this mean? Well, they were all terms used to describe worth based on weight in the ancient world. See, we, we base worth based on how much something costs, right? how much money it's going to cost. They determined how much something was worth based on its weight. And you would put it on the scale, and that's how you would know how much to pay for it. Well, these are words that refer to that, that the mene refers to the mena. He uses the noun form in all three words here. The verb form, though, means to count or number. Notice how that parallels with what the Bible says in verse 26. God has numbered. What does it mean to count or number? God has numbered the days of your kingdom, but He's not just numbered the days. He's brought it to an end. It's going to happen that night. Tekel, the second word, refers to the shekel, which was about one-sixtieth of a minna. The verb form means to weigh. Verse 26, rather 27. Tekel, here's what that means. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God has weighed you on His defined scale and you don't weigh enough. You haven't measured up to His standards. And then parsin refers to half a shekel, so one, one twentieth of a minna, and the verb form means to divide. We'll look at that in verse 28. Perez, the singular form, because your kingdom is divided. It's taken from you and given to the Medes and Persians. Here's what that would have looked like in Aramaic. If you would take all those letters and smush them together and read it from right to left, that would have been the handwriting on the wall. And we see what it means. Daniel not only reads it, but also interprets it. It's a message of judgment that the kingdom has been taken from you and given to the Medes and Persians because you have been found lacking. So we find how it turns out that Belshazzar came through on his word. He gave Daniel the third-in-command position, but like we said, it didn't last very long. 
Because that night, Belshazzar was killed. That night, the kingdom of Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. Remember, Babylon in Daniel chapter 2 was the head of gold? Well, now the breastplate of silver is taken over. Now the Medo-Persians are going to be the dominating world power, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. The chapter next week is going to center on Darius the Mede, so we won't mention anything about him now. Just the fact that you have the Medo-Persians, the Medes and the Persians. Darius was the king for the Medes, who reigned for two years alongside of Cyrus, who was the king for the Persians. Uh, so it not only concludes the story we find here in Daniel 5, but also leads into Daniel 6. Okay, any other thoughts on the text before we take just three or four or five minutes here to apply it? Okay, well, just a, just a few thoughts about what I think can be helpful from this text. Number one, learn from other people's mistakes. I bet Belshazzar wished that he would have. He knew why Nebuchadnezzar suffered in Daniel chapter 4. He knew the story. He lived through it. He knew why it happened. But he did not learn from Nebuchadnezzar's mistake. He fell into the very same trap. He didn't humble himself before God. He lived in arrogance and pride instead of living in humility, recognizing that God is in control, him thinking that he is in control. I mean, how, it's kind of prideful, like we said a minute ago, to have a banquet when the Medo-Persians, a powerful army, is about to step into your capital city. So he didn't learn from Nebuchadnezzar's mistakes. Like we said, learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. I think if we were to do that, if I were to look at your mistakes and you were to look at my mistakes and we were to learn from that, it'd really go a long way. But what we often try to do is what I think Belshazzar tried to do. We try to do the same thing that someone else did, but we expect different consequences. Well, I'm, I'm going to do the same thing they did. I'm going to make the same mistake that they made, but it's not going to turn out for me like it did for them. What's the definition of insanity? You know it? You do the same thing time and time and time again, but you expect different results, right? And we see that in Belshazzar. Made the same mistake, experienced the same results. And the same is true with us. If, if we don't learn from each other's mistakes, we're going to end up having to endure the same consequences. And in Daniel chapter 5, those consequences are pretty significant. Number two, God will humble the proud. We said this last week in Daniel chapter 4 about Nebuchadnezzar, but I think it's worth saying again, he refused to humble himself before God. So what did God do? God humbled him. Jesus, we, we, we said this two weeks ago, and Matthew 23, 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus offers the same warning that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar lived out. That if I exalt myself against God, if I refuse to bow the knee before him and to completely submit my life to him, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And I can tell you, we don't want to experience that here or hereafter. That night, Belshazzar died. He was killed. That was his humbling. So God will humble the proud. We can bank on that. Number three, honor God. I, I, I just think that's so powerful at the end of verse 23 where Daniel looks at Belshazzar and says, you were willing to praise and honor and worship these idols that can't do anything, but you refuse to honor the God who's in control. 
The God who's involved in every moment of your life. The God who gives you every single breath and gives you the ability to make every single decision every day that you live. How often do we bow the knee before idols? How often do we praise and worship things that can't do anything? We place things above God that have no eternal significance. And this text teaches us not to do that. that te- this text warns us against that. Don't worship things that have no eternal significance. Don't honor things that, that can't do anything. Instead, honor the one who can do everything. Honor the one who's in control. Honor the one who gives you every breath and gives you the ability to make every single decision every day that you live. you realize God's that involved? you realize God is that much in control? That He gives every breath and gives the ability for every decision? Honor, worship, praise God. And then number four, we need to read the handwriting on the wall. Just like when Belshazzar finally knows what the handwriting on the wall means, he knows that the time of judgment has come. He knows that God's patience has ran out. He knows how much he's messed up, and it's too late for him to make it right. We need to read the handwriting on the wall. I like what Michael Whitworth says about this. One of the resources I'm using. He says, for us as Christians, the writing is on the wall, and it's not as mysterious or enigmatic as it was for Belshazzar. On the final day, so, so what is the handwriting on the wall for us? Here it is. On the final day, God will judge all people according to their deeds. And since we've all sinned, our doom is eternal punishment apart from God. But that's not the last word. In Christ, the written record against us is nullified. In Christ, we don't stand condemned. God's wrath is a righteous yet terrible thing. So don't wait a second longer or it may be too late. Do we have any other thoughts we want to mention before we extend the invitation here tonight? Let me say this. Don't let your life be put in the balance and found wanting. Don't allow your life to be put in God's divine balance, not living up to His divine standards. The handwriting is on the wall. The warning is there. And you can respond to that tonight. You don't have to leave this building in the wrong relationship with God. You don't have to leave this building with trials and difficulties and pain on your heart that you feel like you're having to deal with by yourself. We'd love to help you. We'd love to assist you. The the, the writing is on the wall and we can respond to it tonight before it's too late. As we stand and as we sing.